again to everybody. For those who don't know me, I'm Jenny. I have the joy of serving as one of the pastors here at Orange Coast. And I'm really excited as we're resuming our Luke series here this morning. The scripture we'll be looking at today uh, has been shaking my life in good ways, and I'm really excited for how it's going to impact all of our lives this morning. A couple of years ago in New York City, there was a film crew that went around a park, and they asked people in the park the question, who is Jesus? And the people's answers are honest, heartfelt, and just um, genuine answers. Let's watch as the people share. Historical figure? I don't know. I think he was just a person. I don't know. Just a normal person like us. He was a selfless person. I have no clue. He was a man. I think he was marketing genius because he got people to believe him. I don't. I don't think he's the son of God. I don't believe that at all. If David Copperfield was in the day of Jesus, he would be Jesus. I'm pretty sure he existed. Like I'm not gonna say that he didn't exist. He was God's son, but so was Gandhi, and so was. Muhammad and so is, you know, we're all God's children. Jesus is someone I pray to. Well, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, um, and he, to me, is the, like, symbol of just ultimate forgiveness and ultimate love. He's sort of that, like, constant figure in my life. Jesus is also Isa in Arabic, and he was a messenger as well. He was just extremely enlightened, like, religiously and morally. Was somebody that um, just tried to um, impart wisdom on others and um, make the world a better place. I think he saw something that a lot of people didn't see and still don't see in others. And I, I think that's just a lot of love and, and hope. Jesus sort of seemed like an ominous uh, figure. You know, he just, he, he was God, and it was hard to relate to him. But I think as I've grown in my faith a lot, I've really started to see Jesus as my closest friend. I really appreciate each of those people's just honesty in trying to answer this question, who is Jesus? You know, if someone had asked me that question at the beginning of my time in college, I think my answer would have been like one of the first two young women, either just saying historical figure and kind of shrugging like, I don't know what else to say other than that, or the second young woman who just kind of laughed with embarrassment and said, I don't know, I have no idea. If someone had asked me that at the beginning of college, that's what I would have said. I've shared a little bit with some of you about my journey towards becoming a Christian, and I want to share a little bit more with you today about that. So I grew up never going to church, um, never having really heard about Jesus at all. Um, I grew up through elementary school and junior high in Berkeley, and I had this one picture of Christians from Berkeley. There's this street in Berkeley called Telegraph Avenue where there's a lot of street artists, musicians, different shops. And my one picture of Christians from Berkeley was an evangelist standing on a corner just yelling. And it didn't sound loving. It didn't sound approachable. It just sounded like we were being told that if we didn't somehow come to know Jesus, that we would just uh, be condemned to hell. And so that was my first picture of Christians. Then for high school, we moved to a town called Lafayette, which is a little bit further east from Berkeley. 
And there, my one picture of Christians was that I felt like there was this group of Christians in my high school that were very unapproachable and sort of had their own clique, and I didn't know how I could ever approach them and become part of it. So those were my two views of Christians growing up. Then in college, I started meeting Christians. God put Christians around me in the dorms, and I started learning from them about Jesus. I started reading the Bible for the first time in my life. Um, I started really praying to God and just seeing what would happen. Um, I started going to Bible studies, and my friends started witnessing to me about Jesus. And during my first three years in college, there was one particular friend and I who were learning about Jesus together. She had grown up Christian. For me, it was brand new. But we were both being just, our lives were being turned upside down in a good way by what we were seeing of Jesus in the scripture. And so my friend and I had what we called um, epiphanies, these things that God was showing us from scripture. So we were at this high-pressure science and engineering school, and God showed us from Scripture that we didn't need to worry obsessively, that we could seek first the kingdom of God instead. That was one of our epiphanies that we took note of and that turned our worlds upside down. We kept a list of coincidences. We would pray for things, and then these coincidences would happen. And over time, the list got so long that we knew they weren't coincidences. I remember a mathematics friend of mine got a message about some emergency in her family, and she had trouble reaching her family to find out what it was. And I wasn't a Christian yet, but I cared about my friend, and so I prayed for her. And when she finally reached her family, it wasn't an emergency at all. It was just some simple thing. And so that was sort of on my coincidence list that I realized wasn't really a coincidence, but was actually God. And so through my first three years in college, we had these epiphanies from Scripture, these coincidences in prayer, and I was learning and learning and learning about Jesus. And then a time came where God impressed upon me that it was time to take a next step. And I want to pick up that story, my story, a little later in the message. As we've been looking at the Gospel of Luke in our sermon series, the same thing has been happening to the disciples. They've been learning and learning and learning about Jesus as they've traveled with him and seen him minister and seen his compassion for people and how he brings in the outcasts and how he forgives and heals people. We've seen how Jesus calmed a storm. The disciples were out on a lake, and the storm arose that was so furious that the disciples were afraid that they might die. Maybe some of you have been in weather where you weren't sure that you would make it out alive. And the disciples were in that situation, and we saw Jesus wake up from where he had been sleeping in the midst of the storm, And we saw Jesus, with a word, cause the storm to just calm and come to rest. And the disciples began wondering, who is this Jesus? Who is this who is Lord over nature? We watched with the disciples as Jesus set a demon-possessed man free. This man was so tormented that he was kept chained up. And when he broke those chains in his wildness, He ran out to the tombs and lived among the tombs. 
think about how much oppression that is to end up living out among the tombs. I used to live in a city that had a prison facility for the most severely oppressed people. I think I heard that people there were kept restrained, that they were kept chained up. And friends warned me because they knew my heart for prison ministry. They warned me, don't even think of volunteering at that place. But Jesus healed a man like that, a demon-possessed man who lived among the tombs, and Jesus healed him. And the disciples and we saw that Jesus is Lord over the supernatural as well. We watched as Jesus healed a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. She had lost her family. She had lost her friends. She had lost her place in society. She was an outcast. And we and the disciples watched Jesus' compassion and power as he set this woman free and healed her. And we and the disciples saw that Jesus is Lord over brokenness and disease. And in that same incident, we watched as Jesus brought back to life a little girl who was 12 years old who had died. You know, I've heard testimonies of God still doing that today, bringing people back to life. And the disciples saw that for themselves. And they saw that Jesus is Lord over death. And then the disciples themselves were sent out to preach and to heal. And that's what they did. I think of what it's like to be sent out on a missions trip and to preach and teach and pray and heal in Jesus' name. And the disciples did this in his name. And more and more questions began to develop over who is this Jesus who is able to do these things, who is able to heal and bring people back to life and set people free. And the questioning reached the level of the political leaders as Herod began to question, who is this? Who is this Jesus? And finally, two weeks ago, as we looked at Luke, we saw Jesus take five loaves of bread and a couple fish. And in the hands of the disciples, the food multiplied and fed 5,000 men along with women and children. We saw Jesus' love and compassion again, and we saw that he is Lord over all creation. And so the disciples have been learning all of these things about Jesus as they follow him and serve with him and learn from him. And in today's scripture, we will see that it is time for those disciples to take a next step of following Jesus. Let's pick up the story in Luke chapter 9 at verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? A little bit like the video at the beginning. The disciples replied, some among the crowds say you are John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. And then Jesus asks this amazing question that is the focus of our our message here this morning. Jesus says to his disciples, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are God's Messiah. Jesus was praying as he often did, and I believe that he knew in prayer that it was time for the disciples to take their next step in following him. The crowds 
at that time, and the crowds in the video as well, thought perhaps Jesus was a prophet, perhaps he was a great teacher, a moral leader, perhaps he was an enlightened spiritual master. But Jesus asks his disciples who have been getting to know him, what about you? What do you say? Who do you say that I am? You know, it's one thing to start learning facts about Jesus. While I was in college, I started learning many things about Jesus. It's one thing to learn what your friends believe about Jesus or what your church teaches about Jesus or what your family thinks about Jesus. But that's not the same as knowing Jesus. And I believe that Jesus was inviting his disciples and us to know him, to not just know about him, but to know him. And so this passage represents an incredible moment. I feel like everything pauses as Jesus says, okay, that's what the crowds say, but you, I picture Jesus looking in each of his disciples' eyes and looking at their hearts and saying, you though, who do you say that I am? And I picture everything just kind of growing still for a moment as Jesus waits to see their response. And then Peter responds on behalf of them all. He's their spokesman, sort of. And he says, you, you are God's Messiah. He's saying, you are the Christ of God. You're the anointed one. He's saying, you know, all the Old Testament prophecy of a deliverer who would come. Peter is saying, we say that that is who you are, that you are the Messiah. You are the one that we've been waiting for. You, you are the one we've been longing for. You are the one who was prophesied and who has come. When Jesus was born on earth, an angel proclaimed, Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And now Jesus has grown up, and his disciples have reached the point where they recognize that that is true, that he is the Messiah. I feel it's like a mic drop moment. You are the Messiah, Jesus. I feel like we could sit there just in that truth. But Jesus has more that he needs to tell them because Jesus needs to show his disciples what it means that he is the Messiah. And it turns out this is very different from what they were expecting. So let's pick up the scripture at verse 21. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then Jesus said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. And Jesus says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. 
Peter, on behalf of the disciples, has just confessed, Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are the one we've been waiting for. You are the deliverer. And Jesus immediately tells them not to tell anyone. It seems like a strange reply. But the Jewish people had an expectation of the Messiah that, he, that yes, he would deliver them, but that he would deliver them in a political sense. The Jewish people had had many different nations that had ruled over them. And the Jewish people were longing for a deliverer who would set them free from that rule. And so they were expecting that the Messiah, when he came, would do that. That the Messiah would bring that kind of freedom. Jesus needed to tell his disciples that that is not a picture of what he came to do as Messiah. And so instead, Jesus tells them what must have been disturbing, unexpected news when Jesus says, the Son of Man, I, Jesus, will suffer many things. I'll be rejected by all the religious leaders. I'll be killed, and on the third day I'll rise again. It's not what the disciples were expecting to hear from their Messiah. You know, on this side of Easter, we know that Jesus had to die for us and that he was raised again. But the disciples didn't know that. They were hearing about Jesus' upcoming suffering and death and resurrection, but they hadn't experienced it yet. Imagine what a shock it would be to hear that the Messiah is going to suffer and die and then be raised again. And Jesus continues and talks about what it means for us, his followers, to be his disciple. He says that we too must take up our cross and follow him, that whoever wants to gain their life will lose it. But if we're willing to lose our life, we'll gain the life that is real life. He tells us it would be tragic to try to gain the world and end up losing our souls in the process. I want to step back into my own story. After those first three years of college where I was learning and learning and learning about Jesus, as I entered into my final year of college, I felt like God was impressing upon me that it was time to say yes to him. By that time, I had fallen in love with Jesus. I wanted him in my life, but I still didn't really want to make this commitment and say that I was a Christian. And that fall of my senior year, God began impressing upon me. And this is the way I heard it in prayer. It was like God saying, we both know it's going to be yes, but it is time to give that yes. And God kept impressing that upon me. I would go to Bible studies and feel like God was speaking, you know, specifically to me, impressing upon me that I had to go ahead, that it was time to say yes. And that's what I think Jesus is calling upon his disciples to do in this passage, to give their yes in all that that means, to understand his suffering, his rejection, his death, and then resurrection, and to understand his call on us to also take up our crosses and follow him and not seek to, to hold on to our lives, but be willing to give away from, of our lives to serve others. This morning in our Life Together group, a campus minister from Orange Coast College visited us, and she was sharing about what it's like doing campus ministry at um, a community college. 
And we were struck by how someone like her could have gotten a different career and made good money and had a good, comfortable life. And instead, she's support raising and living on a low salary and pouring out her life so that students can come to know Jesus. And I feel like that is what Jesus was calling his disciples and what he calls us today to do, to not cling to our lives, to not cling to comfort or safety, to not protect our lives and hold them tightly, but to give away our lives to follow Jesus. Jesus uses this vivid picture of carrying a cross. Condemned criminals would carry the bar on their cross to the place where they would be killed. Jesus is using this picture to impress upon us what it is like to give our full yes to him. I think about missionaries that I have known who have been willing to give away their life if needed. There's a free Methodist missionary, Phyllis Sorter. She serves in Nigeria. And several years ago, you may have heard the story, she was kidnapped in Nigeria. And she could have died. And she, she didn't die. She, um, she was rescued eventually from the kidnapping. And she continued serving in Nigeria. She still serves there today. And she is pouring out God's love on a tribe that is considered outcasts within Nigeria itself. And she is just pouring and pouring out the love of God on this tribe of people whom God loves. And I see that as a picture of what it means to say our yes to Jesus and to not hold on to life tightly, but to be willing to let go of it for the sake of real life. Some of us will be missionaries overseas. Some will serve God here where we live. But I wholeheartedly believe that every one of us is invited to give our full yes to Jesus. Every one of us is invited to not hold tightly onto life, but to give away life, to give away the love of Jesus so that other people can know about him as well. So Jesus concludes his words here by saying, truly I tell you, Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. I believe Jesus is saying that as we give our yes to him, that the kingdom of God breaks in and that we get to see that kingdom of God breaking into our lives and to our world. And there's one more incredible part of today's scripture. Let's pick up the story again at verse 28. About eight days after Jesus said all of this, Jesus took Peter, John, and James with him and went up on a mountaintop to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw Jesus' glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter did not know what he was saying. And while he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them. 
and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came from the cloud saying, This, Jesus, is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. You know, the whole passage of scripture today up until this point was all conversation. Jesus talking with his disciples, hearing their reply, and sharing more with them. Now eight days have passed, and Jesus is up on the mountain praying once again with Peter, John, and James. And on this mountaintop, a miraculous, amazing experience takes place. It's what we call the transfiguration. And it is filled with Old Testament power and prophecy and meaning. I shared with you a few weeks ago about my college reunion. There was a Star Wars theme to my reunion. And honestly, I totally missed that theme. A friend had to point it out to me. And I can't even share with you details of what I missed because I don't even know what I missed because I don't know my Star Wars. And it doesn't matter to me if you remember over time that I don't know my Star Wars, but if you happen to remember that, what I want you to remember is how much we can miss in Scripture if we don't know the Old Testament salvation story that pointed towards Jesus. And as we look at this transfiguration passage here today, there is so much richness to it because of how it connects with Old Testament salvation history. We see Moses and Elijah appearing with Jesus on this mountain. Moses, who led the Israelites out of Egypt, out from slavery. He led them out in the Exodus. And Elijah, this amazing prophet who was used by God as a symbol of old times, of end times deliverance. So we have Moses and Elijah speaking of deliverance out from slavery, end times deliverance, meeting with Jesus on the top of the mountain. And God's splendor is present and his glory is present. And as they are there, Peter doesn't know what to do. Peter wants to freeze the mountaintop experience. And Peter suggests, let's stay here. We'll build shelters for each of you. Let's stay here on the mountaintop. Let's freeze the experience. And then the cloud of God's glory comes, and the voice of God the Father comes and speaks these amazing words. You are my, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Earlier in Luke, at Jesus' baptism, we saw God the Father speaking similar words. At the baptism of Jesus, God the Father said, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And now on this mountaintop, as Jesus gets ready to begin to head towards his death, the voice of God the Father speaks again, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Stepping back into my salvation story, as I headed into that senior year and God impressed upon me, it is time to say yes. I tried as hard as I could to avoid that. I talked with all my friends and just talked and talked and talked about Jesus until I ran out of things to say. And finally, one night, alone in my room, 
I think what happened is that I finally quieted down and finally listened to him. I finally listened to Jesus. And alone in my room on that night, in the fall of my senior year in college, I finally said my yes to Jesus, and I finally listened to him. And I wonder for all of us here today, what does it mean for you and me to listen to him? What does it mean for us to to put aside the other voices in our lives and to listen to him and to give our yes to him? So on that mountaintop, the shelters weren't built. Moses and Elijah went back to heaven, back to glory. And Jesus, he went back down the mountainside, down to the people, down to the crowds that needed him, down to the place where he would suffer and be rejected and die, and then be raised again. And I think that still today, the question of this passage, the question of Jesus is the question for us still today, of who do you say that Jesus is? Let's look at our weekly challenge. So this week, I want to invite you to read back through this passage. From chapter 9, verses 18 through 20, look back at who Peter says that Jesus is. That's an easy question to answer because it's right there in the scripture. But the harder, more important question for us is, who do you say that Jesus is? And I invite you to take time this week and really search your heart and answer that question for yourself. Who do you say that Jesus is? To grow in your faith, I invite us to read Luke 9, verses 21 through 27 again. And pray and seek God about how you will say yes to Jesus this week. And then do what you hear God telling you to do. Let's give him our wholehearted yes this week. And then to overflow in God's love, I invite you to reread Luke 9, verses 28 through 36. And take some time this week to quiet the busyness and the other voices in your life and to listen to Jesus through scripture and in prayer and see what Jesus is saying to you and truly listen to him. So as we go through this week, let's really seek God for where we are in our relationship with him. Who do we say that he is? What does it look like for us to say yes to him this week? And let's listen to him and respond as he leads. Let's take some time in prayer to begin to do that even now. I'll invite the worship team to come on back up. And let's pray together and respond to this passage. God, we have seen your compassion. We've seen your power. We've seen your mercy. We've seen that you are Lord over all creation. You're Lord over death, Lord over brokenness, Lord over disease, Lord over oppression. God, I believe you're inviting us to give our full yes to you. And so God, for the people here today, for myself as well, God, I ask that you would search our hearts, 
Show us each for ourselves where we are in learning about you and getting to know you. God, if we haven't given you our yes yet, I ask that you would help us. Help us past whatever stands in the way of that. Help us to give our yes to you today, God. God, I pray that for each of us, we would be able to say, Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are Lord. You are Savior in our lives. And I pray this week, as we take time to listen to your voice, God, I ask that you would quiet everything else that keeps us from hearing you. Help us to hear your voice. And help us, God, to truly listen to you. And then help us to respond. God, I thank you that you love each person here so deeply and dearly. And even as Caroline spoke earlier over us, God, I pray for each person here that we would know that we are beloved by you, God. God, thank you. Thank you for life in you. I pray blessing over each person here. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's continue in worship and let's continue responding to what Jesus is saying to us today. if you're able.